0: Thank you the form of comics, ain't it?
1: What you need is a hobby. The words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know. It's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil and a blind lawyer, you know? We
2: have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is a, an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are our last link
0: to an ancient way of passing on
2: history. You can put on a uniform for football, year-round, nobody cares. Basketball, year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me they make comic books here.
1: That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it
2: works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe.
1: That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard.
0: Hello, 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 and welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. Presented, as always, by two true freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I fucking love Christmas. I love Christmas. I mean, guys, one of the worst-kept secrets of this podcast is how much I love comics. But probably second only to that would be how totally in love with Christmas I am. And so, being as it's Christmas, I thought, well, I don't want to go overboard with it on the one hand. But on the other hand, I did want to mark the occasion in some way or another. Now, I just said a second ago that I love, love, totally freaking love Christmas. And by now, my reputation for recording a bunch of bullshit pretty far in advance is, I think, pretty well established. So, the question you guys should all be asking yourselves right now is, how close... Or, for that matter, how far away was it when I recorded this episode? How far away was it from Christmas when I recorded this episode? I shall not answer that. I just like creating ambiguity on the subject. (laughs) Anyway, so... Basically, what's been going on here is... As I sort of established... A couple of weeks ago, when I or months ago, actually, when I was working my way through the the, the Babs loves Dick mega series that basically focused all about the um, ah well, I got for lack of a better word, I guess the Barbara Gordon Dick Grayson relationship, right? I was going through a little bit of a Batman kick, obviously, and. In the process of doing all of that, one of the comics that I I ended up kind of falling ass-backwards into was the Batman Adventures Christmas special, published in January of 1995. And so I thought it might be kind of fun, actually, to talk about that comic for my podcast's Acknowledgement, slash observance slash participation in slash acknowledgement of Christmas, however you guys choose to define what this episode is and what it means. That was basically what I had on my mind. I thought, you know, this might actually make for a pretty good Christmas episode. At least at some point or another. And wouldn't you know, it is now some point or another. So that's basically, I guess, the agenda here, you know? That's really what, you know, what I'm up to. Now then, according to Mike's Amazing World, the release date for the Batman Adventures Christmas special was December the 6th, 1994. So, just to kind of put that in context, I was 14 years old when this book came out, and... As I recall, December the 6th, I don't know if that was the exact date that I picked this thing up. If I were a betting man, I would actually say I doubt it. But I do know that I that I picked this book up in short order, not very long after it came out. Now, the cover price for this thing was $2.95, and that was a pretty penny back in 1994, but I don't remember this being all that all that difficult a sale for my old man who, who would have paid for this comic. And the reason for that, if that sounds a little bit strange to any of you, the reason for that would have been because of the fact that I think at this point I was doing all or most of my comic book shopping through mail order. And... Michael Bailey and Tom Panerese, they did a two-part crossover episode between Pop Culture Affidavit, which is to say Tom Panareese's podcast, and Views from the Long Box, which specifically is Michael Bailey's podcast. And the sum and substance of their discussion basically centered on collecting comics in the 1990s. And... As I recall, I could be wrong about this, but as I recall, the views from the long box episode was all about... I I think you could say it was basically kind of a retrospective about Wizard in general, vis-a-vis a a specific issue of Wizard. I want to say it was like Wizard number 60 or 65, I don't know, whatever the fuck, I don't remember. Go ahead and, and check out his episode about that if you want more specific information. But that, as I remember, was the subject for the views from the long box episode. Pop culture affidavit, however, primarily focused on mail order. And so there was this brief little section in there uh, concerning uh, Mile High Comics. Now, any discussion about collecting comics, and especially mail-order comics, sooner or later, you're going to hit upon Mile High Comics. It's it's just the nature of the thing. I don't know why, but it, you know what? It, it may just be that they were fir- uh, firstest with the mostest, and so that's why everybody remembers them all these years later. You know, I'm totally willing to consider that as a possibility. Um, it, you know, or... it. it 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 just it could be that you know their legacy just looms so large it could be honestly any of a number of things but basically that was at least to start with their introductory subject but they didn't they didn't really stick with that for the totality of the episode and I'm not saying that as a criticism I'm just saying it's fucking true you know the conversation ultimately branched out into other directions such as podcasting I suppose But I do think it would be fair to say that the lion's share of their discussion centered heavily, shouldn't say exclusively, but definitely centered heavily on Entertainment This Month, which was basically a mail-order service that, among other things, was designed to sort of compete with Mile High Comics. Now, I think the main difference between Mile High Comics uh, versus... Uh, Entertainment this month probably relates more to, I guess, the 90s ness of collecting comics, you know, and the sort of speculator hype aspects of things. Where mile high comics, maybe if what you need is that elusive copy of, I don't know, uh, Amazing Spider Man number 322. You would go to Mile High Comics for that, just because your local LCS, which is, I guess, is sort of redundant, but fuck it, whatever, I'm keeping that in, your LCS, maybe they don't have that specific back issue in stock, and being as this is the 90s, it's not like you can sign on to eBay or something like that and, you know, bid on this shit, so you pretty much, you've got no real option except to find a back issue service, and that's all well and good. But that's not really what entertainment this month was all about. And I don't want to retread too much of what uh, Panerese and Bailey said, primarily because I don't want it to look like I'm copycatting their ideas. But the other thing is, I don't want anyone to think that just by listening to me talk about this, eh, now you don't have to listen to them talk about it. No, you guys need to listen to them talk about it. So find that episode of pop culture affidavit about collecting comics in the 90s. Again, Michael Bailey was the guest star on that episode. And you can listen to them talk about it for yourself. But basically, just to kind of give you, I guess, the, the quick and easy version, Entertainment This Month, they were, to me, they were just so... Typically 90s, I guess. And the way that they would, they, they would hype certain things and so basically this is where you'd go for the new book you know the new hot book you know young blood number one this book will be hot um brigade number one this book will be hot uh Turok dinosaur hunter number one this book will be hot which fucking wasn't true but whatever that was nevertheless the promise of the thing and one of the things I noticed was that you didn't get a major price break with entertainment this month slash American entertainment or whatever other names that they ever used. You didn't get a major price break, but you got some kind of a price break. But the really nice thing, the part that really appealed to me as an eighth grader who didn't have a a a car, didn't have a driver's license, was too young for all of that shit, didn't have a job, so didn't have his own money coming in, basically had had to depend on, you know, allowances and then, you know, doing work around the house, you know, chores and whatnot in exchange for pay. Because my parents, I love them, are very capitalistic in their worldview. They didn't mind giving you a little bit of money as an allowance, but if you wanted, like, the full pay for something you needed to do some kind of chore, right? You needed to do dishes, you need to take out the trash, you need to mow the the lawn, fucking whatever, whatever needs doing around the place. Well, if you do that thing, then you get paid extra, basically, is what it comes down to. So, whereas... A lot of parents would say, Shut the fuck up, Junior. I want you to do the dishes, and I'm not paying you for it. You're just going to fucking do it, or I'm going to beat your ass, you know, or something like that. My parents tended to be a little bit more eh, enterprising about the whole thing, you know? I mean, push comes to shove. We kids were going to do chores. There's just really no getting around that. But what they used as an incentive was, well, it, it was basically. Uh, An attempt on their part to, on the one hand, create honest, hardworking, productive citizens. Which is to say, do your fucking chores. And at the same time, teach us a little something-something about the value of money, too. So, there you have it. Oh, and this is fucked up. I actually just now looked at... uh, I uh, I just did a Google search for entertainment this month. And, you know, clicked on images and I found an ad an a, uh, an entertainment this month ad and didn't even really think too much about it. I said, okay, well, this is what I'm looking for. Open it up. And then, but I'm looking at the web address for it. And this is the pop culture affidavit, uh, a blog page. So <laughs> how perfect is that? So, well, anyway, that just proves my point. You guys need to listen to Tom Panarese, again, the host and founder of Pop Culture Affidavit, a badass podcast in its own right, and Michael Bailey, the host and founder of Views from the Long Box, another badass podcast in its own right. Talk all about entertainment this month in that episode of Pop Culture Affidavit. Just go ahead and give it a shot, guys. Satisfaction fucking guaranteed. But the reason I'm going to fucking Kansas and back with this story is to say that I would have ordered Batman Adventures Christmas special from entertainment this month, right? Because basically, the way that it works, and this is actually a very clever marketing strategy on their part, I thought. If you order just one thing from them, what they would do is for a period of like two or three months, they would send you their catalog so that you can order next month's bullshit. And basically there was your little subscription, and I'm using quotation marks there, but your little subscription to their catalog basically had a two or three month shelf life or something like that, after which it would just automatically expire if you didn't order anything from them. They'd stop sending you the shit. But if you kept ordering stuff, they'd keep sending you the catalog. And it was just a really fucking cool way to get your hands on comics. Because, again, guys, I was in the 8th grade. You know, I was 14 years old. I was too young to get a driver's license. I was too young to have a car. I was too young to get a job. And so I couldn't just go to the LCS anytime I wanted to and pick up my shit, right? I just couldn't do it, right? So if I wanted to get my loot, well... It was easier to persuade my dad, who was, let's face it, the primary uh, benefactor of my comics collecting. For whatever reason, it was easier to persuade him to spend, say, uh, whatever, $40, whatever, on comics via mail order than it was for me to persuade him to drive me to the LCS to spend $20 on comics. I don't understand the metrics of that. I really don't. But for whatever reason, I don't know why, but for whatever reason, it was easier for me to talk him into this stuff when it was done through mail order, right? Now, this had the unfortunate side effect of not really being able to collect as many back issues as I might have wanted, but the way that I looked at it, one must prioritize with one's collecting, you know? I mean, that's that's a decision I think every collector has to make at some point or another. You know, what are you willing to sacrifice while keeping your your collection up to speed, you know? And what I ultimately decided, the priorities that I had was basically following all of the Superman titles, as many Batman titles as I possibly could. And then after that, whatever else I could fit in, that's what I'd fit in, you know? And like I say, the necessary drawback to using a service like entertainment this month is that you're not able to buy as many back issues as you might want. But, you know, I just, I I figured, well, I'll, find a way to get more back issues someday. But for right now, entertainment this month, this is a good little deal. And this may be, you know, the best option I have, at least for right now, you know? And so that's how it happened. So imagine how happy I was whenever I came home from school and there was entertainment uh, this month uh, order that I'd put through, and contained therein was the Batman Adventures Christmas Special. Now, as I say, the one of the great problems with mail-order comics is delivery times, right? I don't know that mail-order has ever, or for that matter will ever, find a way to get comics to you in a reasonable amount of time in relation to their uh, original release date. What I've discovered is, at least the services I've used, kind of suck when it comes to getting your comics to you on time. I don't know why this is, but basically, if you want to get your comics on the day you need to get your happy ass to your LCS and pick your stuff up there. That's just about the only way to make that happen, right? So I don't, and this is all a long way of saying, I don't believe that my copy of Batman Adventures Christmas Special, I don't think it arrived even during the month of December. I think it was actually, it might, if I had to guess, I would say that it probably arrived sometime closer to maybe the middle of january right which is one of the reasons that i ended up getting kind of pissed off at entertainment this month in the long haul and ultimately decided i needed to take my business elsewhere and guys that's a separate podcast for another day but suffice it to say i fucking tried everything and what i discovered is that everybody sucked just about equally, so pick your poison, I suppose. Anyway, all of this is a long way of saying that the comic eventually arrived, and, you know, sometimes, guys, I know that a lot of you heavy-duty comics collectors have had this experience where you kind of have to talk yourself into certain comics. It's like, I guess the genius of it doesn't necessarily speak for itself, what you have to do is kind of warm up to it. Does that make sense? You can't just instantly love a comic book sometimes. Sometimes what you need is time. What you need is perspective. You need a certain amount of distance so that you can appreciate the fullness of what this comic book truly is, right? And I know I've had this experience thousands of fucking times, but now all of us, of course, I'm blanking on examples because the way that I podcast is I just basically have a little list here of five or six or seven little bullet points that I'm supposed to mention, and then pretty much I improvise on everything else, and I guess this is one of the drawbacks of that approach. Woe is me. But I know I've had that experience, uh, I don't even know how many times, but it's, it's happened, you know, where I needed time to accept a particular comic book. You know, it, it didn't sink in for me right away. The Batman Adventures Christmas special is not one of those comics. Literally from the first page, I knew I was going to, for the most part, love this comic book. And indeed I did. Uh there are some quibbles. Yes. But for the most part, I fucking love this comic, right? And even the quibbles that I've got, they're not major gripes. They're just little nitpicks. I mean, that's I'm pretty much scraping the barrel to come up with something about this comic that I don't like. You know, and that's just the way that it happens sometimes, you know, where you know, it's it's kind of like love at first sight where you just know. And that's that's how things worked out with Batman Adventures Christmas Special. So anyway, I've really rambled a lot here, so I guess I should probably start talking about the comic book because, hey, that's a novel idea. But first up, what, it, what needs to be said is that this is an anthology uh, comic, right? There's not a single story in here. Basically, there are six listed stories in this issue, right? You've got Intro, which is an abbreviation of Introduction, so that should be kind of self-explanatory. There is, following that, there comes Jolly St. Nicholas, followed by The Harley and the Ivy, followed by White Christmas, followed by What Are You Doing New Year's Eve, Followed by should old acquaintance be forgot. So in actual practice, the way that this actually come the way that this all shakes out is these stories all fit some of these stories actually fit together. And there is continuity between these stories because this starts off near the beginning of December and then the conclusion of it takes place just after midnight on New Year's Eve, so just after midnight New Year's Day, maybe is the more accurate way to put it. So there is a sequence to this. There is a chronology to it all, and I hope that all makes makes some kind of sense here. But anyway, basically, though, the to start with, this is uh, intro by Paul Dini, art by Dan Reba, coloring by Bruce Timm, lettered by Richard Starkings slash Comicraft. And it's basically just this little one-page introduction to jolly old Saint Nick, but it's pretty easy to work through, really. Uh, actually, and I was wrong a minute ago when I said December the 1st, because that's not actually where this starts. Um, This actually starts, uh, intro starts on December the 1st. So I think I said December the 3rd a while ago. Strike that, December the 1st. So, December 1st, the holiday season has come to Gotham. Even without snow, the gray, weary city seems to sparkle in the cold. It's time for celebration, for dreams to come true, and for angels of light and darkness. So just, like I say, just a little one-page story that shows Batman swooping uh, down into, a, or swooping through, I should say, swooping through a very snowy-looking Gotham City. So, pretty straightforward. And really, this is called Intro because of the fact that it leads directly into the next story that we're going to be talking about. This is titled, Jolly Old St. Nicholas. Written by Paul Dini and Bruce Tim, Art and Color by Bruce Tim, Lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And this takes place, this is what I was thinking of just a while ago, this actually takes place on December the 3rd. Story synopsis is as follows. On December 3rd, while shopping for presents at the local Mayfields, Barbara Gordon encounters Detective Bullock and Detective Montoya on an undercover operation. Knowing that the pair have been sent to capture a thief plaguing Gotham's department stores, Barbara stays behind to help, and soon catches a young boy making off with a necklace. However, Barbara and the detectives quickly discover that the thief is not a child, nor even a gang, but actually Clayface, who split himself off into separate children, disguised basically as separate children, to rob uh, these places and then keep the loot for himself. The detectives and Mayfield security all prove ineffectual against Clayface until Batgirl arrives on the scene and knocks Clayface outside onto a skating rink. Clayface is slowed down by the low temperatures and ultimately gets electrocuted into unconsciousness when Bullock and Montoya drop a string of Christmas lights onto him. The case is closed. But, to Bullock's dismay... The police are still obligated to dig the stolen merchandise out of Clayface's body. The end. So, what did I think? Well, guys, it needs to be said that there's a, there's a, a weird fucked up degree to which the extent of my experience with Barbara Gordon as Batgirl in the animated universe is... It's not exclusively restricted to comics anymore. But at the time that this comic came out, yeah, I had never actually seen any of Barbara Gordon's appearances as Batgirl, as sad as that may seem. Basically, she, in this run of uh, Batman, the animated series back when it was still on Fox, she was only in, I think, like one or two or three episodes as Batgirl. And then that was it you know, so those would have been easy episodes for me to miss, and I'm guessing that's what happened, because I never saw those episodes until I was an adult, and then I had the big DVD box set, and I was able to work my way through the entire series and just, you know, watch the whole thing. So I had, however, read several uh, Batman Adventures comics where Barbara Gordon took center stage as Batgirl, and I would... I don't think it's an, an exaggeration to say that Barbara as Batgirl was actually a bigger, it was more of a thing, I guess, in the Batman Adventures comic book than, in fact, it was on Batman the Animated Series, which inspired the Batman Adventures comic book. I hope that all makes sense. But anyway, so what I'm saying is that I didn't have access, at least at that time, to tons and tons of uh, Batgirl stuff. So this, you know, little things like this from the Batman adventures, I always enjoyed it when it came along. It was it was a lot of fun, you know, tons of fun. So anyway, basically, though, right here, this is on uh, page three of, or sorry, I should say uh, page two of this issue that we're talking about here it's actually the first page of this story but it's page two of this comic does that make sense so that's really where things pick up and I don't know why but there's something about Gotham City celebrating Christmas it's just for some reason there's a lot of resonance for me you know this idea of Batman in the Christmas season, you know? It's almost like he's a little bit of a fish out of water in one sense. But, I don't know. I just... I kind of like the idea of, you know, a Christmas-themed Batman story, but also just Gotham City in the Christmas season. I like it. I think that... Honestly, I think that's one of the main reasons why I love Batman Returns so much is because it just luxuriates in the fact that this is Christmas in Gotham City, you know? So... I don't know, whatever. It's, it could just be the, the Christmas fanboy in me, because, guys, I was a Christmas junkie even when I was a kid. And I don't even just mean, you know, like the presents and the gift-giving aspects of Christmas. You know, I don't, I don't mean just that. And to be honest with you, I don't even mean this just in a religious type of sense either. I mean, yeah, I was raised in a Christian home. That much is true. But for some reason, Christmas season you know there's something that's just so big about it you know it's it, it this is this is the most wonderful time of the year it, and it's also to me the most important time of the year for religious reasons yes but for other reasons as well you know and it's i don't know why but there's just this mood of festivity of goodwill and cheer love for your fellow man that, frankly, you know, it sounds corny to say we probably should have that all year round, but let's just fucking be realistic. For some reason, we can only really manage it around Christmas time. But, you know, the coats and the hats and the cold weather and the hot chocolate and the eggnog, dude, just sign me the fuck up. I would love to have that all year round. And unfortunately, I can't. So I enjoy the hell out of it when I can. But man... Anyway, whatever, I'm rambling. The point is, I loved this stuff even as a kid, okay? So this is not something that kind of manifested itself in my adult life. This was... Christmas was something that was really important to me, even as a child, you know? And I kind of like the idea of seeing this, you know, Gotham City... The fact that Christmas means something to them, too, you know? I just dig that. I don't know why... But I just really enjoy that. Now, of course, the, you know, the festivity gets kind of undermined right away by the fact that you've got uh, Harvey Bullock basically going undercover as a department store Santa. And, you know, literally the first time we see him, you know, he's surrounded by donuts and junk food and empty beer cans. And one child that he's that was just sitting in his lap, you know, having the Santa talk is running off you know, crying and shit, and the other kids who are still waiting in line, they're all staring at this horrifying, you know, Santa, and they're just scared out of their minds, you know, they're too afraid to even approach him, and anyway, it's, I don't know why, this is just, this is great, this is, (laughs) I, you know, I kind of wish that there had been a sort of, like a Batman Adventures miniseries of, where it's nothing but Detective Bullock going undercover as department store Santa's, or, or, you know, as social workers, or basically anything that requires him to interface with the public is going to be fucking gold. And I just, I dig this. It's, cause <laughs> how can you not laugh? You know, this, this is, this is funny, you know? So, and he says, hey, kid, pull my finger on, a uh, on page three. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is just fucking great. I love it. So anyway, Barbara is perhaps rightfully put off, and kind of amused, but still slightly put off by this idea of Harvey Bullock as department store Santa. And uh, it just, it it plays for me. I just really dig it. So anyway, rambling here. But basically, to kind of get into whatever meat this story really has to it, to get into the meat of the story, that actually starts up on page five, And basically what happens is Barbara spies with her little eye, this little juvenile delinquent little shit, basically shoplifting. And it comes out in pretty short order that this is, in fact, Clayface in disguise. But we don't necessarily know that right away. She tries to stop the little boy, grabs him by the wrist, and then she's holding not but his wrist. He's separated himself from his wrist and made a run for it, which is to say really fucking weird. And department store security is chasing another, another kid. Rene Montoya is chasing another kid. A uh, beat cop is chasing yet another kid. All of these kids meet in the center. They kind of gel together and hey, here comes Clayface. And guys, I got to tell you, You know, the art here is being done by Bruce Timm. And I know that he's got a thriving career as a writer, as a storyboard artist, you know, and general designer and director and all of these other sorts of things. You know, he's got a thriving career already. But I can't help thinking, you know, he sort of missed his calling as a comic artist just because of the fact that his work is so expressive And it could just be that he's drawn that fucking many storyboards in his life. He knows how to convey action using still images. Because when you think about it, the skills related to creating storyboards, they're not that far away from drawing comics. You know, I mean, I'm not exactly saying that, you know, A is A here, but they're really pretty similar to one another you know like in the big scheme of things they're really pretty similar to 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 each other and it really shouldn't come as too big a surprise that hey the guy's good at it you know and so anyway so beginning on page 7 Barbara Gordon swings into action as Batgirl and or at least she puts on her Batgirl outfit on page 8 the situation gets pretty dire because you've got Clayface beating the shit out of the, uh, out of the police and the department store security team. And he just doesn't even take Bullock and Montoya seriously. He just hawks a Clay Lugie and shoots it at him. You know? And next thing you know, Montoya and Bullock's guns get jammed up by a Clayface Lugie, which is just disgusting to even talk about. And... He's pretty much shut him down. I mean, there's really not much more they can throw at him at this point. So he moves in for for the kill, shapes his hand into a kind of an axe shape, and it looks like it's going to be curtains. Curtains, you hear me? Curtains! For Bullock and Montoya. And that's the moment that Batgirl, on page 10, makes her dramatic entrance. She crash lands into Clayface's face. And... After that, the wreck is on. The fracas spills outside onto the skating rink. And yeah, you know, there is the fact that Clayface is slowed down by the cold. There is that to consider. But when you come right down to it, he's still Clayface. He's still dangerous. He can still kill you. And so basically it comes to light that Batgirl's plan here wasn't so much to get herself drawn into a meaningless fist fight with Clayface, because you talk about a losing proposition. Basically, she's there to serve as a distraction so that uh, Bullock and Montoya can get the real drop on Clayface and then drop those Christmas lights on him. And that's ultimately what ends up taking him out of action. And this is just, it's really clever writing. You know, that is the kind of tactical advantage that batgirl would look for you know because i don't want to I, I don't want it to sound like i'm denigrating Batgirl's skills as a fighter but batman can rely on brute force i don't think he necessarily prefers doing that but in a lot of situations you know batman probably can rely on brute force to get him through you know Batgirl, to me, she's one of those characters who fights smarter, not harder. She'll trade punches with somebody only to achieve an objective. You know, whether the punch is intended to knock the guy out or if the punch is intended to distract him from something else, Batgirl doesn't fight until she already has a kind of a rough idea on how to win. You know, she's good at improv, don't get me wrong. She's not necessarily the same kind of master strategist that Batman is. She's she's more of like an improv artist. You know, but at the same time, she doesn't necessarily rely on just sheer physical strength and fighting skills. She'll fight, but she fights smart, you know? And that's basically what she's doing here. She's offering herself up as a distraction for Clayface. So that the police can get the drop on Clayface using other means, you know, she's not there necessarily to do, to to fight to the to a standstill with Clayface. She's there to give the police a chance to do their job, and you know, I think that's a kind of smart way to to write Batgirl number one, just because of the fact, guys. Let's face it, women are not most women are not as strong as most men, you know. Some people out there would say, well, fucking, that's that's a sexist thing to say. Well, if sexist means telling the truth, then yeah, fucking, I I guess that's what I am. All right? But, you know, the simple reality of the situation is that your average woman getting into a fist fight with your average man, she's going to get the shit beaten out of her in pretty short order unless the guy feels like taking it easy on her, you know? So... It's just, this to me just seems like it's an honest way to tell the story on the one hand, but there's another level going on here too, where, you know, there are times in these stories where police are made to look weak and ineffectual, and that's not what happens here. I mean, the police are crucial to taking Clayface down. In fact, it wouldn't have been possible, probably, for Clayface to get brought down any other way, you know? And I like that, you know, the police shouldn't be portrayed as useless, dundering oafs, you know, who can't do anything, you know, they, who can't do anything right. You know, I don't think that's a that's a positive way to portray the police. And I kind of appreciate the fact, just to kind of be honest about it, I sort of appreciate the fact that Paul Dini and Bruce Tim, you know, the writers of this thing, knew enough to not fall into that trap. You know, it it plays for me. And I guess moving up kind of, uh, you know, above the weeds on all of that, I think Barbara Gordon, of all people, would be sensitive to not disrespecting the police. You know, of all people, I think she would know, she would know not to do that. You know, so that plays for me all around. Now, as I say, this... This story is drawn by Bruce Tim, and guys, I have to tell you, you know, this looks more like the WB version of Batman the Animated Series than the Fox version of Batman the Animated Series. Now, it could just be that Bruce Tim's line style was evolving, because, you know, if you're any good with art at all, you're going to, you will get better. Your style will get refined. You know, you will improve your skills. And you could argue that that's just what we're seeing here is the evolution of Bruce Timm as an artist. You know, I'm completely willing to consider that as a possibility. But one thing that I want you guys just to kind of put in the background is that maybe... Just maybe the Fox-era Batman the Animated Series, even though it was designed by Bruce Tim, it doesn't actually look the way that Bruce Tim, really does draw. You know, that's not a good representation of his style. Whereas the WB version, you know, the redesigned version of Batman the Animated Series, that's a lot more in line with Bruce Timm's style, because guys, the WB version of Batman the Animated Series bears a much closer resemblance to Bruce Timm's art as we see it here. So I just want to put that in the background and let you guys chew on that for yourselves. So you can agree or disagree, but I'm kind of starting to think that maybe Batman the Animated Series, as it was on Fox, maybe that wasn't very similar to Bruce Timm's actual line style, you know? So, anyway, I don't know. But either way, that's pretty much what I've got to say about Jolly St. Nicholas. Next up is The Harley and the Ivy. And the story synopsis for it is as follows. On December 11th, Poison Ivy and Harley Quinn drug Bruce Wayne with a special lipstick that forces Bruce to obey all of their commands. With Bruce's wealth and prestige at their disposal, the villainesses immediately go on a shopping spree, purchasing many expensive clothes, perfumes, and toys. Eventually, though, the the lipstick begins wearing off and Bruce manages to trip down an elevator shaft before Harley can drug him again. Harley and Ivy leave the billionaire for dead, only to be pursued by a furious Batman moments later. After a harrowing chase through a nearby toy store, Batman captures the two villainesses by pinning them under a Christmas tree. Ironically, the present Harley had wanted most for Christmas. The end. So, what did I think? Well, guys, I gotta tell you, Harley and Ivy, as a pair, that really first became a thing with Batman the Animated Series, because fucking that's where harley quinn made her debut so necessarily the sort of partnership between poison ivy and harley quinn is necessarily a product of i don't know about batman the animated series but more i guess the general tim verse you know or the Diniverse, or the animated universe—fucking whatever you want to call it. You know, I honestly, to be—if I, I—if I'd known I was going to mention this, you know, I might have actually checked. You know, where did the Harley Ivy partnership actually begin? Did it actually start on the animated series, or is this actually something that originated in the Batman Adventures and then got incorporated into the animated series? And I don't know the answer to that. So, I guess I probably could have checked, but hey, would have, should have, could have. But the point is, no matter how you look at it, this is definitely something that started in the animated universe, and that's, fucking, that's what I'm driving at here. So, anyway. And the reason I mention this is to say that this is just gold, you know? I mean, you've got, you know, Ditsy Harley, who in her own kind of way has a special type of ruthlessness. But it only manifests in certain cases and in certain situations at certain times. Whereas Poison Ivy is inherently more misanthropic and therefore inherently more eh, ruthless, I suppose, than Harley Quinn is just like in her default condition. You know, at any given moment... Poison Ivy is more likely to want to wreak havoc, cause mayhem, and hurt people than Harley Quinn. And that works for me. Harley Quinn is just the more fun loving, happy go lucky of the two, whereas Poison Ivy is the one that's always got more of an agenda. I mean, she's definitely the brains of the operation. There's no question about that. And they just play really well together, you know? This is a good concept. And I've always liked the, you know, every story where they team up together, I just. I just really dig that, you know? It works for me. And the idea of them basically drugging Bruce Wayne and helping themselves to the Wayne fortune as a Christmas present to themselves. I just like that. You know, that... That just... That, that plays for me on so many levels. Now, on... On why aren't they numbering the fucking pages all of a sudden golly okay so on page 19 basically what we're supposed to believe is that bruce can go to mayfield's accompanied by some of the most wanted fugitives in the entire city and maybe even in the entire country he can just pop into mayfield's and no one's going to think to call the police to say hey We've got some wanted felons here, so maybe you guys need to come down here and pick them up. So, I don't know. I just... My point is, I don't think that Bruce saying, as he he does on page 19, I don't think that Bruce saying, Miss Isley and Miss Quinzel are my guests. Please put their purchases on my account. I don't think him saying that would be enough to get these chicks out of trouble with the law, is what I'm saying. But it's still when you when you can get yourself past that, you know you' you've got this really funny montage of ivy of uh, Harley and Ivy. They're just running around Mayfields. They're trying on all all different kinds of clothes. And at the end of the day, guys, they they may be super villains, but they're still they're still women, right? And of course, they love their retail therapy, you know, And here on page twenty, you know, this is kind of one of the more '90s moments of of what we see all in here. Is there? I f- I forget. That, I think there was a name for these type of giant hats that women used to wear back in the '90s. But those huge, like, cat in the hat type of hats that women used to wear, like young girls and women, used to wear all through the '90s. You know, they're trying those on, and holy shit, I just totally forgot. <laughs> Until this moment, I just I totally forgot that people used to wear those stupid things. I mean, I don't know why. It's like, on the one hand, I know how stupid those things look, but I always thought it just looked so fucking cool when women would wear those. I, I don't know why. It's like, it's stupid, but it's cool at the same time. So, I don't know. Anyway. God, talk about a blast from the past. Jeez, I totally forgot about these things. Anyway. So one thing kind of leads to another on page 21. Uh, Bruce basically manages to kind of throw himself down an open elevator shaft and Harley and Ivy basically assume that he's fallen to his doom. And to be fair, we don't actually see how he escapes. So, hey, he's fucking, he's Batman, I guess. But anyway, so Batman swings into, swings into action and... Harley and Ivy take cover in Wacko Toys, and basically this is sort of like Home Alone, but less so, where the the women actually attack you know, the villains attack the hero using toys, and rather than it being at home, they're in a department store, but you know, same basic difference, you know, it's pretty much the same thing, I guess, in a way, maybe, not at all, so, whatever. Anyway, But, basically, the fight's on. You know, they... uh, Harvey... uh, Harvey... Harley grabs her trademark giant fucking mallet uh, to smash Batman. And Ivy, she's got a giant, like, Hal Jordan-approved, giant green boxing glove that she smashes Batman upside the head with. And uh, just all through this. I mean, they're basically hitting him with everything that they can find on the shelves. And you know, like I said, for some reason, the first thing I thought about was like, like like I say, Home Alone in reverse, but not really. So anyway, I don't know, just all around, this is, this is just a fun, fun story. I, I dig it. And I, I guess that's really, that's about the most I really have to say about it, in fact. So from there, things kind of take a shift because we've had two kind of fun stories in a row. But from there, Things sort of shift a little bit to uh, a little bit of a sadder tone, I suppose, with White Christmas. That's the story, White Christmas. Story summary is as follows. On Christmas Eve, Mr. Freeze escapes from Arkham Asylum, an act which baffles his doctors as he'd always been one of Arkham's most compliant inmates. Batman tracks Freeze down to Gotham Cemetery where Freeze is using one of his old inventions to create a massive snowstorm that's sweeping across Gotham City. After a short but brutal battle with Mr. Freeze, Batman destroys the snowmaker but stops himself from landing a a killing shot on Mr. Freeze and instead asks Mr. Freeze to surrender peacefully. Freeze does so and when asked about the motivation for his breakout... Gestures to the headstone of his deceased wife, Nora. His late wife had loved the snow and married him on a Christmas Eve. To honor her, he'd broken out to bestow snow on on a Christmas Eve that would have passed without any snow. The end. And, you know, guys, actually, before we even get started, I want to take a sip off my Dr. Pepper here. Okay, now, guys, I really don't think I'm going to be able to offer you some kind of new and original and unique insight into the Batman the Animated Series presentation of Mr. Freeze. I just don't think I'm the guy, really, to do that. You know, I mean, Mr. Freeze, as he was presented on Batman the Animated Series, is so heartbreaking. He's so... special. That, you know, I, I'm i almost tempted to say that the only time the animated series really should have touched on him at all was Heart of Ice, and then that should have been it. You know, because I'm one of those people who's a little superstitious. You know, you're kind of tempting fate a little bit if you go back to the well, you know, and you run the risk of destroying everything that made this really cool thing that you did, you run the risk of destroying everything that made that thing cool, you know? And prosecution's exhibit A on that is actually the animated movie, Batman Sub-Zero, where, look, guys, I'm gonna, I'll I'll be the first to admit, it's been years, at least a decade, probably, since I saw Sub-Zero, but I that was just a piece of shit. You know, I mean, I don't remember really getting into sub zero as a movie at all. And it, to me, it kind of undermined, not permanently, but it it kind of undermined heart of ice for me that, you know, not necessarily every time that the animated series tackles Mr. Freeze, is it going to be gold, you know? And so as I say that though, it, Needs to be said that you know what, maybe there is something to be, to be said for revisiting something, you know, and maybe maybe making a sequel out of it because that's really what this is. Well, I don't know about a sequel necessarily, but it's almost like this is a postscript to Heart of Ice, the episode Heart of Ice, or it's like maybe maybe it's an it's an epilogue, perhaps to Heart of Ice, but. However you choose to to view this, this is just an extremely powerful and emotional story. I mean, on the one hand, yeah, you've got the weirdness of people, I guess, responding negatively to uh, a snowy Christmas Eve in Gotham City. I mean, that's a weird thing to be upset about when you really think about it. But, you know, whatever. That's for whatever reason, that was a bother to people, I guess, you know? So when you move away from that, though, you know, you've basically got this sort of, this showdown with Mr. Freeze in the cemetery. And, you know, I don't know this to be true, but what I've always assumed is that on some level or another, all through Heart of Ice... Batman didn't really have anything personal against Mr. Freeze. And for his part, Mr. Freeze didn't really have anything personal against him. They were just in each other's way. But Mr. Freeze, in short order, found himself in a position where he had no choice but to try squashing Batman like a bug. And through a similar quirk of fate, Batman also found himself in a position where he had no choice but to beat Mr. Freeze's ass... But neither of these guys really wanted a piece of the other. They both just wanted to... They Both of them wanted the other one to just fucking go home, you know? Let's not do this. We don't have to do this. It doesn't have to be this way. But that would require both of them turning their back on their mission, and that just can't be allowed to happen. So I guess the immovable object meets the irresistible force. And the fact is... There is no, There is truly nothing personal between these two characters. I mean, of all characters in Batman's rogues gallery, you could argue that Freeze is maybe the most similar to Batman in the sense that he's on a mission, and he's not going to, at least in Heart of Ice, he's on a mission, and he's not going to let anybody stand in his way. And I think Batman, of all people, would probably fucking understand that you know but unlike batman's other villains there is no there's no rivalry here you know and that's a kind of a unique thing for that's a kind of what i'm saying is that's a sort of a unique relationship for batman to have with any of his enemies you know to have somebody who's not even really an enemy when you think about it i mean yeah he's in batman's rogues gallery mr Freeze is there's no doubt about that but Is he really Batman's enemy? I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think... I don't think Freeze thinks of himself as Batman's enemy. And I don't think Batman thinks of Mr. Freeze as an enemy. You know? And I'm not trying to overanalyze this on the one hand. But on the other hand, it does need to be said that the relationship they have with each other, the way that they relate to one another, this is very unique in batman's rogues gallery you know sorry it's all of this talking here it's actually started to dry up my throat i'm running low on dr pepper here but maybe i have enough to get by and a tiny little sip left maybe i still have some of my water left oh of course wouldn't you fucking know i've only got a sip of water <clears throat> well anyway so as I say I don't want to beat this thing to death but it does need to be said that Batman's relationship with Mr. Freeze is unique in all of uh, his his rogues gallery that he, he doesn't have this relationship with pretty much with anybody else you know even Two-Face you know Batman is invested in Two-Face it's just he's invested in reaching him but he's still invested on a personal level, you know? And, anyway, I just, I find that I find their relationship very uh, fascinating. So, there comes this moment, though, and this is on, I wish they'd number more of these fucking pages, because it really gets annoying having to flip around here, trying to figure out which page is which, and then do the fucking math on it from there. So... Okay, fuck it. I don't even feel like finding out which page this is on. Basically, there's a page where Batman gets smacked across the cemetery and lands against his own parents' headstone, you know, their shared headstone, and that clearly affects him on some level, and he makes he makes a, a point of picking up Bruce Wayne's own wreath, the wreath that he'd laid there himself, picking that up and putting it back on the tombstone, and then venturing back into battle against against mr freeze and there comes a point when you know batman he has a chance if he wanted to he could have killed mr freeze in this moment if he was so inclined but instead he drops that giant metal fucker and instead says it's christmas so i'll give you one chance to end this quietly Why'd you do it, Freeze? Tonight, of all nights. And Freeze just points at the headstone for Nora Freeze, his wife. And what we can surmise from all of this is that she's dead. And I'm going to come back to that in just a second. But Mr. Freeze says, We were married ten years ago on a snowy Christmas Eve. Nora loved the snow. I thought it sad that there should be none this year. And I wouldn't want my Nora to be sad tonight. And, I mean, God, how does that just not... How does that that not just break your heart? You know, I mean, Mr. Freeze in Batman the Animated Series was always a heartbreaking villain. I mean, how can your heart not go out to this guy? On the one hand. But on the other hand, I mean, you know, ultimately what he wanted in Heart of Ice was to fucking kill somebody. So you can't condone what he's doing but at the same time guys we all understand we know where he's coming from you know what i mean because i think about it you know like if somebody was to ever hurt stacy and if i could track that guy down get my hands on him what what would i do to him you know yeah i can totally understand where freeze is coming from on this you know and and then also the devotion he's showing to his wife here by, by uh, breaking out of Arkham and creating an artificial blizzard just as an act of solidarity, love and affection for his wife. Now, I guess what I always assumed, based on nothing, but I guess what I always assumed... From Heart of Ice was that Nora Freeze was still alive. But when actually, you know what? When I reread this story, I thought, you know what, motherfucker, I kind of wonder about that now. And so I actually rewatched Heart of Ice specifically so that I could talk about this part of the uh, comic here with all of you guys. And you know what? It's never outright said in Heart of Ice that Nora Freeze has passed away, but there are very few. There aren't very many other ways to interpret why Mister Freeze does what he does in Heart of Ice, unless Nora's dead. I if the only thing that had happened to him is that he he would have had to live the rest of his life in in basically a a refrigerator with with legs. I think Mister Freeze would be put out by that yeah he'd definitely be pissed off but i don't think he would do what we saw him do in heart of ice if this was the only problem that he had as serious as this problem is i don't think i honestly don't think he would he would resort to murder just to avenge what was done to him but if nora died Yeah. And this kind of goes back to just what a... How much I just fucking don't like Sub-Zero as a movie. Batman Sub-Zero as a movie. That, as I recall, that movie explicitly says that Nora Freeze is still alive. And it sort of calls into question, you know... Wouldn't she have an opinion about what her husband has done? I mean... That would be, when you think about it, that would be a fate worse than death for somebody like Mr. Freeze, where his wife is still alive and now she disapproves of him, of everything that he's doing, and she's telling him so. Whereas if he can lie to himself and convince himself somehow that, you know what, Nora would probably approve... Of what he's doing, if he can lie to himself in that way because she's dead and she's not here to say otherwise, I think he'd do it. And it's eh, it's just a it's a powerful moment, you know. On the one hand, you know that Nora Freeze would never approve, or we can be reasonably sure that Nora Freeze would never approve of what her husband is doing, in one sense, but. The other thing is we don't know because Ferris Boyle killed her, you know, by pulling the plug, like we saw him do in Heart of Ice, he not only destroyed Mr. Freeze, he destroyed Nora too. Actually, and you know what, is it, is it actually explicit in Heart of Ice that Nora died? Because now that I think about it, Batman actually makes a point of saying He announces to the crowd, including Summer, Summer Gleason. he says, Ferris Boyle, blah, 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 and in the process, destroyed two lives. Well, if Nora was frozen, you know, she was cryogenically frozen, and then she was just thawed out and brought back to life. Well, even then, she was still suffering from a fatal disease. So, I mean, I guess no matter how you look at it, I mean, Ferris Boyle pretty much signed her death warrant. So, hmm. Either way, she's dead, whether she's she died from the fact that Ferris Boyle unplugged her life support, or she's dead from the fact that Ferris Boyle thawed her out, and then she died from that disease. So it's all the same either way. Holy shit, I never even thought about that. Again, guys, this is what happens when you do improv po- uh, podcasting. You know, you think of things in the middle of it all that you probably should have thought about much earlier on, but didn't. Anyway, so I think that's pretty much what I have to say about uh, White Christmas. Next comes... Actually, I'm going to tackle these last two stories. I'm going to tackle these kind of simultaneously because they do go together. Uh, But these next two, these final two stories are What Are You Doing New Year's Eve? And Should Old Acquaintance Be Forgot? So, story summary is as follows. On New Year's Eve, the Joker broadcasts a threat to kill as many people as possible before midnight, as he's made a resolution to not kill anyone during the upcoming New Year. Less than an hour before midnight, Batman and the police discover that the Joker has raided a goth corp lab and stolen a sonic bomb capable of making a noise that can kill everybody within earshot. Batman deduces that the Joker has linked the bomb to the countdown bell at Gotham Square, counting on the the bell's midnight ringing to kill thousands of New Year's Eve revelers. As an extra precaution, the Joker has also delivered masks of his own face among the revelers, making it impossible for Batman to spot him or his henchmen at a glance. Seconds before the countdown begins, Batman finds and beats down the Joker's men, but is attacked by the Joker himself, who stuns and taunts him with a bottle of champagne. Batman quickly seizes the bottle and sprays its contents over the bomb's control panel, which causes it to, to short out, and then results in a small explosion. The explosion causes the the countdown bell to fall from its perch and onto the Joker, just as the new year officially begins. After the Joker is taken into custody, Batman meets Commissioner Gordon at a local cafe per their annual tradition. And this is, by the way, should, all, should old acquaintance be forgot. So, that's the end of what are you doing New Year's Eve? Now for, should old acquaintance be forgot. After the Joker is taken into custody, Batman meets Commissioner Gordon at a local cafe per their annual tradition. The two men exchange season's greetings and drink a toast to their survival. The end. So, what did I think? Well, this is one of the few times in the animated universe where the Joker is actually uh, portrayed as a killer. Now, I think what you can do as you watch Batman the Animated Series is you can assume that the Joker is still a murderer. We just don't see him murdering people. You know? But that doesn't mean he he doesn't murder people. It just means that, the for the most part, the animated series never actually shows him doing that. And... That restriction, which let's face it, that's just a TV thing. That restriction doesn't exist for uh, for comics. Even those that are approved by the Comics Code, they still allow for uh, for villains to be murderers. And so what you would often get in the Batman Adventures is a Joker who at times explicitly and at times maybe implicitly is, guil- is visibly guilty of murder, right? And this is one of those occasions when there's no denying it, he truly is a murderer here. For one thing, on page 41, we actually see one of his murder victims. Uh, this is one of the lab workers at GothCorp, Dr. John Erickson, who was a pioneer in sonic research. And the Joker killed him, and there's no two ways about it. You know, this guy is fucking dead. And that's really all there is to it. So there's that. But the other thing, the entire nature of his threat and what he's promising to do depends upon him being an actual murderer. So there's that to consider. So all around, my point here is to say that the Batman Adventures comics typically the Joker was a lot more balls out in the comics based on the Batman animated series than he was in the animated series itself. So hopefully that all makes sense, because as I hear myself talk about it, I'm not really sure that I'm doing all that good a job of explaining it. So I'm just going to say yes and move right along. So basically what we're seeing here is Gotham City kind of has, and this is starting on page 42, um, this is basically Gotham City kind of serving as a little bit of a surrogate for New York. Because instead of Times Square, they have Gotham Square. And that's where the big annual New Year's countdown takes place every year. And, you know, I've always kind of had, I guess, philosophical problems with Gotham City kind of as an alternative New York City. Simply because of the fact that it, it kind of takes away some of Gotham's original characters, that uh, uh, original character that it's developed and kind of evolved over the decades. I mean, look, you can, uh, it's not really open to debate. I mean, originally, Bob Kane and Bill Finger intended Batman to live and operate in New York City. But then there came a point when that switched to Gotham City specifically so they, they could have a, a great, big, large, huge city that doesn't necessarily conform to the truth of what New York is. I mean, that's the point of it. It's one thing for you to, to kind of look at it and think, well, this is kind of like New York City. But to see stuff like something along the lines of the Statue of Liberty, which is what we saw in uh, Batman Forever, Or right here in this issue where we see Gotham Square, which is obviously a substitute for Times Square. I mean, there's just no mistaking how similar they look to one another. It just kind of bothers me to kind of view Gotham City as, well, it's New York City. It's just called Gotham City in the fiction uh, in, in, in a fictional universe, but it's it's New York City. It's just they don't call it New York City. They call it Gotham City, but it's, it, it's New York City. So everything that exists in New York City exists in Gotham City. They just don't call it New York City. They call it Gotham City. You know, it's just a fucking retarded. All right. I mean, I kind of like the idea of Gotham City as a sort of East Coast uh, city. I always thought that, you know, if New Jersey were to ever have like a major... Like a major city, um, an important city, like a major metropolis along the lines of Gotham City or Metropolis or Opal City or just fucking whatever, Keystone City, whatever. Yeah, it would be basically Gotham City, I think, you know, like it, like if in real life, New Jersey had a real city, like a real big city of actual note and import, yeah, it would be basically Gotham City with everything that implies, you know, maybe not costumed superheroes and supervillains, but basically Gotham City otherwise, you know, and New York City is New York City. New York City is not Gotham City, the stuff that happens in Gotham City, and I'm not talking about just, you know, superhero type stuff. I mean, just the day to day reality of New York City is nothing at all like the day to day reality of Gotham City. That's just the simple fact of the matter, you know, whereas I think it would be in New Jersey, you know, maybe without the superheroes, although who the hell knows, but, you know, maybe without the superheroes, but basically that's what a big city, an important city, like a major metro in New Jersey, that's more or less what it would be, fucking Gotham City. And so I've always kind of assumed that if you were to look at a map in the DC universe, you would see Gotham City located in New Jersey. That's just what I think, you know. And so to see it as as a sort of a New York City analog, it's just, have you no fucking imagination, you know? And so, look, I realize this was written by Paul Dini, and, well, actually, actually now that I say that, it's actually written by Paul Dini and Bruce Timm, so it's not really my business to criticize Paul Dini just because of what a fucking badass the guy is. But it just bugs the shit out of me. Anyway, I'm making way too big a deal out of this. Moving right along... This is just a fun Joker story. That's the point. The Joker, I think, rationally would get his jollies from destroying Times Square. You know, killing literally everybody inside of Times Square. Because he's made a New Year's resolution not to kill any more people for the next year. And you know what? My view is that the Joker, for the upcoming year, he was a man of his word. He didn't kill a single person. Not personally. He may have ordered that somebody else do it, but he never took life himself, you know? And so because of that, he was actually telling the truth. You know, he wanted to kill as many people as he possibly could before his year away from killing people, basically his year off from first degree murder starts up, you know? And this is a real priority to him. Now, the rest of us, you know, a rational person who's looking at this would say, my God, that's just fucking chilling. But to him, you know, he's like, hey, I'm not going to kill anybody for the next year. So I want to kill a shitload of people tonight to kind of balance it all out. You know, that's fucked up. And he would think of that as a great joke to play, you know. And so every single bit of this fits into the psychiatric profile, you know, just who the Joker truly is. None of this seems forced. This is a very logical thing for him to do, in my opinion, you know. And this is just a really fun story. It gives the Joker... Basically, none of this strikes me as false. There's not a false note to be found in here anywhere. Unless you count Gotham City as a New York City wannabe. So, I don't know. Overall, just a ton of fun. Love this story. And so then, you get into Old acquaint- uh Should Old Acquaintance Be Forgot, you know... It's a pretty short story, actually. It's really only three pages long. But it's basically Gordon meeting up with Batman at... Actually, I guess four pages from the looks of it. One, two, three. No, I had it right the first time. This is three pages. All right, but basically what you have here is Gordon meeting up with Batman. And to me, I got the impression that this is sort of an Italian food restaurant slash bar, you know, they've got a bar. Actually, I guess it can't be Italian food if they're serving cheesesteak. I don't think that's exactly a traditional Italian dish. Whatever. Until I actually read this last page here on the fly where Gordon orders one of Joe's famous cheesesteaks. I guess I assumed this was an Italian food restaurant, but I guess it's not. Well, fucking whatever. It's, it looks like it actually, now, now that I'm actually looking at it, this actually could be kind of a diner. Fucking whatever this is. I don't know. I just like the visual of Batman and Gordon just having coffee together. You know, I mean, there's a certain amount of distance that has got to exist between Gordon and Batman. Batman does things that Gordon cannot know about. You know, Batman, he knows things, he does things. He thinks things that have that he's got to exclude Gordon from. You know, he and Gordon, Batman and Gordon, on the one hand, they're more than friends, but they're less than allies. Actually, let me rephrase that, because I think I got that backwards. They're more than allies, but they're less than friends. You know, they don't shoot the shit with each other about how Barbara's doing off at college or... Or, you know, did did Gordon ever get his heart condition checked out? You know, or anything like that. You know, or is he planning to retire soon? You know, bullshit like that. Those are not the conversations they have. You know, they depend upon each other to do things that the other one can't. They're more than allies. Their relationship is not totally professional. But it cannot be personal either. You know, they cannot make emotional attachments with one another simply because of the fact that they're not friends. They will never be friends. And they may actually desire friendship with each other on some level, but that would be a very fucking bad idea. A very bad idea, you know? And I just dig the way that that distance between the two of them is... It's at once explicit and implicit in the nature of their association with one another through this story where Gordon asks Batman how his arm is doing yeah but the guy just got fucking shot I mean this isn't necessarily you know something only your closest friend would ask you anybody would ask you how your arm is doing so the fact that Gordon asks that doesn't necessarily make them the best of friends. And the only thing they can do in terms of small talk with each other, you know, Gordon says, close one this time. Batman takes a sip off his coffee and says, they're all close ones. And Gordon toasts Batman and says, well, here's to survival. Hopefully we'll be doing this again next New Year's Eve. And Batman replies, hopefully. And that's it. Batman leaves money on the table kind of as a game, as much as anything, as a game of one-upsmanship with Gordon. You know, I'm faster than you are, and so I'm going to pick up the tab because I'm Batman. And it also reminds you of the fact that part of the reason that Batman does that disappearing act, that whole vanishing routine, is the fact that They're not friends, and it's not necessarily a good idea that they spend tons of time with one another, you know? So that's part of the reason why Batman does what he does. He gets what he needs out of the conversation, and then he leaves immediately, you know? Because honestly, the less Gordon and Batman know about each other, the better. So, I don't know, really good writing. Really good writing. And there's not tons and tons of pages where the characters just come right out and say all of that for the reader's benefit. You have to read between the lines in order to really get it. But this is just great writing. Great fucking comic. Guys, this is a great comic. And you know, there's there's just no way that this comic book can cost all that much since which is important because of the fact that I don't think this has ever been reprinted anywhere. So my guess is, you know, the cover price is two ninety five. Guys, my hunch is that picking up a copy of this comic from your LCS as a back issue probably isn't going to take you very far above the cover price, you know, and in this case, it's well worth the time to do because, guys, this is just a fun comic, and in a weird kind of way, this is a, this is definitely a Christmas comic book in the same way that Die Hard is a Christmas movie, you know? It's not specifically a Christmas movie, and yet it is still a Christmas movie. Well, this isn't specifically a Christmas comic, and yet it's absolutely a Christmas comic, you know? So, lots of fun. Satisfaction guaranteed. And I think you guys will really get a a, a big kick out of this. So, track it down. It can't be that hard to find. eBay, if nothing else, is probably going to have copies up there for cheap. And I think you you guys are just going to have a blast with it. So... That, I think, is pretty much it for, for this. Yeah, because there, there are no other stories here. So that's pretty much it for this comic. Like I say, guys, go out there, find it, check it out, and, and get it. It's a lot of fun. So that's pretty much it for this comic. And guys, I just want to wish all of you a very Merry Christmas. So I think that's pretty much it for me this week. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week.
1: Starting in 1993 and ending, also in 1993, DC Comics brought us 25 issues featuring the premiere of new characters who would go on to shape the face of comics of 1993. For over 20 years, DC Comics has tried to bury these new classics like Nightblade, Edge, Hook, Razor Sharp, and other knife-handed heroes for fear they will overshadow their old standards like Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Vexed, and Airwave. For too long, our voices have not been heard. But no longer. Coming soon. Bloodlines. Best Event Ever Network. Brings together dozens of podcasters and bloggers who... who, Wait. What? Okay. Bloodlines. Best Event Ever Network. Brings together several podcasters and bloggers... What now? I'm doing... Really? They all said no? Brings together a few... Does that work? Okay then. A few podcasters and bloggers who are not afraid to stand up and be labeled fools for doing something stupid. Featuring such podcasters and blogs as Diablo Frank, Professor Allen, I Am The Gun, Coffee and Comics, Between the Pages, and myself, Al Sedano. More details can be found at Com. Bloodlines, Best Event Ever Network, coming on or about April 1st, 2016.
2: If you answered yes to any of these questions, then I think you might like my podcast, Earth Destruction Directive. I'm a dedicated fan of all things Daikaiju, and I'd like to share that with all of you. Please check out Earth Destruction Directive at two 2truefreaks.com. Earth Destruction Directive, where we turn your Daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality. hey jeff hey mike i'm trailing man it sure is great to be back to fctc after such a long time yes it is and we've been away so long yeah but real life you know what i i just i just can't do this can't do what we have taken more breaks from this show than my wife has had in her entire life i mean we can talk about real life getting in the way which it has but it's it's just not fair so we're not going to joke around, and we're going to simply say that for the moment, we're back, and there's a lot of neat stuff to talk about. Like Season 2 of Lois and Clark. And the death of Clark Kent. And the launch of Superman, the Man of Tomorrow. And the return of Lex Luthor. And the trial of Superman. And Underworld Unleashed. <laughs> the show can still be found at the Superman homepage, as well as at the Fortress of bailey And we're still part of the Superman Podcast Network. So From Crisis to Crisis is back for now and it will still come out on thursdays most week at www.fortressofbailey2.com www.supermanhomepage.com or www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com
0: You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about The possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section
2: visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time two true freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on itunes and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow we have so many shows to choose from there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom just search two true freaks with an exclamation mark at the end space and the number two If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely
0: unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with De of Milan, Italy.